Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And now we get to hear from two of today's most important researchers in the world of psychedelic medicine, Michael and Annie Mithoffer. I had the opportunity to meet them for the first time at a small conference in Palm Springs. Uh, it was many years ago. My wife and I were there as guests of Dr. Charlie Grobe, who was one of the speakers. Unfortunately, uh, my notes from that conference have been lost, and so I can't tell you much more about it, uh, not even the year in which it was held. But I do know that it took place not long after they began their research into using MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, and that was when I first began following their important work. A few years later, uh, in 2006 to be exact, Michael Midoffer was one of our speakers for the Palenque Norte Lectures at Burning Man, and you can hear that talk in my podcast number 86 from here in the salon. This was one of his early talks about what was being learned in the initial pilot study that was still underway. Now, over a decade later, that dedicated work has led to the approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to begin Phase 3 trials of MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is the final phase of validation that's going to be required before they can turn the party drug ecstasy into the legal medicine MDMA. So now I'm going to turn the microphone over to Lex Pelger, who spoke with the Mithoffers during his Blue Dot tour. And I think that you're going to really enjoy this interview. This is a no-nonsense production. If you like what you hear and want to help us make the Salon 2.0 bigger and better, sign up to support this work monthly on Patreon.com. As a two-person production, any help goes a long way. Join us at patreon.com slash nonsense. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is a Psychedelic Salon 2.0. It's always wonderful to meet a couple who knows how to be together while doing the good work. The Mitthofers probably need little introduction for any longtime followers of the Salon. Lorenzo featured a talk from Michael in episode 86, just over 10 years ago. But now we get to hear from both Michael and Annie as they sit in a space where they've done some of their landmark work for MAPS, studying MDMA for the treatment of PTSD. Not only were they gracious with their time in talking with us for the salon, they even attended a storytelling session later that night in Charleston, South Carolina. As one of the last stops of the Blue Dot Tour, You'll be able to hear Michael tell a story there in a few weeks. Speaking of, I missed one announcement from last week's storytelling in Chicago. There's also an excellent group there called Psychedelics and the Future of Psychiatry for anyone who wants to be more grounded in the science surrounding these intriguing medicines. So now to hear from two stalwart leaders in the field. <laughs> Uh, 
I'm very pleased to be sitting here with Michael and Annie Mithofer, who you probably a lot of you know as doing the work for MAPS, getting this MDMA through FDA-approved trials as a uh, treatment for PTSD. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for coming, and I'm so glad to be um, meeting you finally. So my first question was, how were your early experiences uh, as as healers influential in moving into this kind of work? Uh, well, for me, um, when I decided to go into psychiatry training after I'd been doing emergency medicine for 10 years, one of the reasons I did that was because I read some a book of Stan Groff's. And so I went into the... I joined the um, Stan Groff's, the Groff Transpersonal Training, to be a holotropic breathwork facilitator at the same time I started my psychiatry training. So right from the beginning, I was oriented toward the you know value of non-ordinary states, the healing, what Stan Groff calls the healing potential of non-ordinary states. And, and we had also had our own psychedelic experiences in college back in the 60s, and We'd had some experiences with MDMA with the therapist but when it was legal, so we had an idea that they could be these compounds could be useful. Yeah, and um, so Michael, when Michael switched to be a psychiatrist and have a private practice and um, do breath work, I also joined the um, breath work training, and I was trained as a holotropic breath work pr- practitioner, and we led groups for ten years and. Um, we also, uh, saw some patients together in Michael's private practice. So we were, um, we worked together a lot doing that and, um, pretty intense experiences. So we were already oriented sort of towards that kind of healing and, um, you know, not ignoring the body and in all of the therapy and, um, yeah, always we were always looking for new things to do and ways to help people. Yeah, in the beginning, we assumed it wasn't possible to use MDMA or psychedelics. So, but the breathwork was very powerful. So, we thought we needed to be content with that for a long time, and we were really struck by how much it offered that other types of less powerful experiential therapies, less you know treatments that didn't help people shift to a an ordinary state were really missing something. And then gradually we, in spite of how helpful the breathwork was, we realized that like anything else, not everybody responds to that. So we decided it would be really important to try to research some of these compounds. So how did those first personal experiences with these psychedelics and MDMA uh, affect you? Well, you know, I came away from my early psychedelic experiences in the 60s um, with being very impressed that these were important experiences. Um, That was really clear, and I had some very powerful spiritual experiences as well as some very frightening experiences that I wasn't sure what to make of at that time. Um, But I knew they were all important, and then, you know, I sort of left that behind eventually. We decided to go to medical school, um, but actually when I read Stan Gross' book, it brought a lot of understanding to the difficult experiences I'd had 
20, 25 years before. Um, and then in our in our MDMA experiences, we uh, what one thing that really struck us both was how much it helped with deep communication between us. We did it uh, together as a couple with a the therapist, you know, some of the time. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I had some psychedelic experiences as a, um, you know, young adult that were not guided or um, didn't have any kind of, um, you know, help with their experience or integration or anything like that. So um, my only experience with that form, which is obviously what we've done, is having the therapist, like Michael mentioned, with MDMA and just seeing how powerful that could be and also doing integration after it and continuing to work with the process. So, I mean, I think that that was the enlightenment about how this therapy could be was it's it's it was a different context not the recreational context that you know so many people do these um, substances with but with a you know a guide and um, somebody that is willing to help you work with the process after it Uh, so what did you learn from working under a therapist for that early about holding space and that you could bring later on to your work yeah, well, you know, like Annie said, part of it, what we learned was really about how important the integration was and how valuable that was, which had been missing back in the 60s. But also, you know, getting over the, and this is partly what we learned from Stan Groff also, and and our therapist understood that too, um, you know, getting away from the idea of bad trip versus good trip. And understanding that sometimes very difficult experiences come, and that's not a bad thing, if you're prepared and have proper context to work with it, it can be extremely valuable. But if you try to move away from it and don't have support to to work with it, it can be a real problem. But we, I think that was one of the most important things: the importance of holding space and support with the difficult experiences, as well as you know, really integrating the the very affirming experiences as well. Is there a special power that you both bring to the table combining your backgrounds in psychiatry and nursing for helping people deal with these difficult experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think Michael and I um, bring, uh, we balance each other a lot. Um, You know, we've been together 43 years. Um, so we've worked through a lot of our own issues, you know, with breath work and, um, like we, Michael said, the MDMA sessions. Um, so, you know, we've just had a, a chance to really kind of get through all that. And so I think when we started doing the research, it came at a good time for us as, as far as our relationship and having gone through, um, leading groups together and, you know, so, yeah, I think we we complement each other as far as Michael being an emergency room doctor and um, not being afraid of things happening, you know, powerful things, and me being a little bit more grounded and more, um, you know, noticing things and, and being aware of things could, I mean, there's some things that could happen, you know. Um, so, yeah, the nurse-doctor relationship kind of, um, we do that pretty well, but um, 
I don't know. I think what we learned from breath work and leading the groups and going through the training ourselves and being witness to some incredibly powerful healing that people from all over the world, I mean, just like at the breathwork trainings, it was just so incredible to be a witness to, to that and to be able to just sit there and not have to do anything, you know, just be a witness or listener, open-hearted, you know, person. So I think we learned a lot of that from our breathwork training. A lot about getting out of the way, let the experience go forward. Yeah, a lot about really trusting the person's own healing intelligence, inner healing intelligence, which is something we learned from Stan Groff as well as our our therapist. Um, so that you know that ten years of doing breathwork groups with lots of challenging things coming up just built us allowed us to build a very deep trust in the process and people's ability to have the experience they need if they have the right support and be able to, you know, convey that trust to people that it's okay to stay with the difficult things. I think it took a lot of direct experience, both in our own experiences of staying with our own difficult stuff and and those, uh, you know, 10 years of doing that with the breath work before we started doing the NBMA research was very helpful, I think. And, I, you know, when I first went to breath work, I had had psychedelic experiences over 20 years before, and I thought, well, how powerful can this be? You know, famous and, last words. Blew huh? my socks off. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> how powerful it was. And you know, at first I thought, my God, this is an incredible technique. And after a while, when it it kept having these, I kept having these powerful experiences, and Annie did, and we saw so many people. I realized it's a good technique, but it, the main message really maybe is these realms of consciousness are not as far away as we thought they were, as I had thought they were. You know, definitely I, I think the medicines can be very, very useful in reaching them, but we are also, it was really good to have a solid grounding in the fact that you can also reach them in other ways and you can really trust your inner intelligence when you do. Oh, wow, that is powerful. Mm -hmm. The MDMA is helpful, but we always have something right there. Yeah. Wow. Um, what... I'm curious what it'd be like to go from leading these groups of people doing breathing exercises to going to the MDMA work, which seems much more concentrated on one person and doing um, more one-on-one -on -one experiences or two-on-one. -on -one. Well, in a way, it wasn't. As, there was that change, but also when we those ten years when we were doing the breathwork groups, we also a lot of people would like come to the office in between. Uh, to do their own individual work. Sometimes we did breath work with individuals. Usually it was in the group, but individuals often came and, and did powerful emotional release work, sometimes on a mat, working with the body, and, and using kind of a similar approach of helping them release things. So it wasn't in that way. We, we were also pretty used to working with individuals together. Yeah, I think um, maybe the, you know, having the groups and, I mean, the having an all-day group with people breathing and then having process takes a lot of energy and a lot of stamina. So um, that probably helped us for sitting for eight hours with people and, you know, being there for 
sometimes very difficult processes and also energies that were coming. So um, I think that really that really helped helped us in that way. Yeah. Yeah, we learned, you know, by the modeling from Stan and our other teachers uh, and also our our own experience over those years, we learned that uh, if you're going to work with non-ordinary states, it's not a nine-to-five job. And if you're going to invite somebody to enter into these states, you need to be prepared for being with them for as long as it takes. So stamina is an important part of this work, too. So your work is on call. You it take it's it's calls in the middle of the night. It's it's lots of follow up. You might not expect that kind yeah, of therapy. Yeah, we we tell people they can call us. You know, during this period when we're working this way, they can call us twenty four any time, twenty four hours a day. We don't get a lot of calls in the middle of the night, but sometimes. But we need to be prepared to support them because, you know, as we say to people, that this is one of the maybe the more challenging things to convey to people in the beginning before they've experienced it. You know, we say it's not just what happens during the MDMA effect. This is a process that gets catalyzed by that, and then it keeps unfolding, and it may come in waves. There may be waves of difficulty in between, and, and what, just as there may be really nice waves. But um, to really support people if they're having waves of difficulty and help them process it, stay with it, and move through it, rather than trying to shut it down or move away from it. That's part of the integration that's extremely important that can really make a difference in how people do ultimately. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing we learned from the, you know, working together was that we worked a lot with a lot of people with PTSD. I mean, Michael's practice really, you know, not wasn't totally PTSD, but um, a large percentage of it. So, we had worked with people that had that, um, you know, had that going on for them. And so, you know, we knew some of the challenges of healing that and being with people during the integration process. And when people who have had, who've been numb to feelings or um, avoid feelings, you know, that's one of the challenges when they start feeling again. So we knew some of that, which was was really good. And I just want to add something. You know, yes, it's it can be hard work and it takes stamina. It's a big commitment, but also it's an incredible privilege to be able to sit with people who are willing to take the leap and go into these states and share their experience with you. So, at the same time as sometimes being pretty tiring, it's also you know really nourishing and invigorating and we we do consider it a huge privilege to be able to sit with people when they're doing this deep work yeah to see the transformation um you know if you could see the snapshots of the people when they walk in the first time and then see them you know three months or five months later depending on how people were randomized but it's it's just mind-blowing to see the transformation in how people are. And, you know, the other thing I want to add, is we have a lot of gratitude toward the people that volunteer to be in the research and end up having really wonderful relationships with them. But also we're constantly aware of how lucky we are to be able to do these sessions 
knowing it takes an incredible amount of work by the whole MAPS team. You know, this doing this research is a very complex and challenging thing to bring, you know, for a small nonprofit to bring this work all the way to now starting phase three trials after doing six FDA-approved phase two trials. That's it. It doesn't happen much. It's usually, you know, government or, or industry funding. So it's, you know, the the friends we have at MAPS that we've made in this work is part of the part of the blessing of it and we really are constantly grateful that how hard Rick Doblin and all the other people at MAPS are working to make the for us to be able to do this. It's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, a reminder to everyone out there, you can always become a MAPS member and get an excellent book in exchange for your support buying MDMA for veterans. Never well, forget. yes, and the, and to not forget all the donors and members that that fund this, you know, that make it possible. We're very grateful for the, all of those people. It's such a, it's like it feels like a community effort, you know. People have the vision that this is worth doing and important to do. It's a, a great gift to be able to be part of the community and would and would you have any advice for uh the aspiring psychedelic therapists out there who feel drawn to move in this kind of work about what you would suggest they might study or do or practice or work on well a big shout out to him first of all because <laughs> it's so great to see a lot of young people saying this is what i want to do with my career because it's there's it's you know so many people are needed to carry this forward so i you know i used to say in the beginning um there are a lot of people that you know quite a few people that want to do this but they don't have the credentials and there are a lot of people that have the credentials but they don't want to do it (laughs) but more and more we're seeing people have both a lot of people are showing up that have both so i think you know the education the credentials are important whether it's in psychology or psychiatry or medicine or neuroscience um kind of whatever someone's passion is but to you know get the graduate education that will put you in a position to be able to to really contribute to this area is is great and i think i know what annie's going to say so i'm going to let her say it and breathwork training (laughs) going to breathwork um but other than that, I mean, there are lots of other things that are, are really good to study, like um, internal family systems um, and Hakomi um, and somatic um, work with, like, somebody that's trained with Peter Levine. So there are all those kinds of things that you can do. You can do an introductory work on, weekend workshop, you know, and... Um, just try it out and then there also are trainings so all of those things that combine the body and a mindfulness and parts work are all really good and there's advice I sometimes give out I should probably pass by professionals like you I often tell crowd uh, rooms full of young people are excited is that they can sit for each other, too, since they're often taking these drugs out at a party just to remind them that you could also take it just one person and another person sitting next to them on the couch and let them have their own experience. That's not something to do with someone with severe trauma, but I think there we can forget how powerful these medicines are and we can be healers for each other within the community. Mm. I'm not sure how well, the set, what you think of that advice. The set, that. 
Well, it's better than going and, you know, taking, you know, huge combinations of psychedelics and having no support. Yeah, obviously the set and setting and having friends be there to support you is incredibly important. Yeah. Um, so getting back to the sessions a little bit, uh, what what are some of the lessons you learned about preparing people for these experiences? Um, well, first thing is just to form a relationship with them. So you have a get to know them and have them get to know you enough to be able to trust that you can support them is really important. And then, you know, talking to them about this idea this reality of their own inner healing intelligence because that's pretty new to a lot of people who've come to treatments thinking that somebody else has to do something to them to get better um, so really emphasizing that the inner healing intelligence is a big part of it and also the way what I said before about the way it unfolds can you describe more about the inner healing intelligence for us um, well we see the evidence for it all the time, you know. Um, for instance, um, you know, we take the point of view, the, the non-directive approach, that we don't know what experience people should have or what order they should have their experiences in. And we just see again and again, if we just invite people to, as much as possible, set aside expectations, not try to have an agenda. Obviously, they have an overriding intention to heal, but not to have an agenda about what that should look like. And so, you know, sometimes we see people that go straight to processing their trauma, and that seems to be very helpful for them. Quite often we see people that have some other kind of experience first, either a, a very affirming experience, kind of really letting it in emotionally for the first time that they survived and that they have a lot of support in their family, that kind of thing, that that you know people say I, I knew that but I'd survived I knew I had support but I couldn't feel it and then maybe their first experience we have seen that their first experience then is having that get in and then later they're in a position to process the trauma or some people have awareness of their own parts suddenly more and, and have a very healing experience about their relationship with their own parts before they actually process the trauma and so it seems like this incredibly elegant and reliable process happens that's different for each person, but that, that really, you know, from the evidence we have, can be extremely helpful. Yeah, and, you know, Michael always gives the example of working in the ER when someone comes in with a cut, um, he would know how to, you know, remove gravel, obstacles, remove dirt, clean it out, but the body has its own innate intelligence of how to heal that wound. It it grows, the wound grows back together, as long as you don't have infection or dirt. And so it, so it's... Sew the edges closer together. You can sew the edges closer together. It's also like you can think about a seed, and a seed grows into a plant, and the sun and water, and if, you, if it has concrete over it, you know, it can't grow. So if you remove that concrete, it has a natural ability to grow. So, you know, PTSD is uh, an interruption of that healing process. That because everybody has trauma, 
And, you know, when you have PTSD, you haven't gone through that healing that, that most people do, you know. So it's interrupted or there's obstacles to, to their healing. So that's, that's part of what we do. But we also, you know, it's for people to get to know us and to know what our experiences are and to start to find out things about the participant are, are part of the things we do in the first three sessions that are the preparatory sessions. And then we try to give them a little bit of an idea of like Stan's cartography of what they might expect to happen. Not too much, but, you know, enough so that they're not freaked out. Um, we also give them instructions about how to use their breath to um, relax if they get scared when the medicine is coming on, um, which is really important to have that tool to be able to calm down when you're, if you're overwhelmed. And, um, yeah, there's, there's more we do, but you want to say some more? Well, we also talk about, we do talk about using the breath that way to calm the system if, if people get afraid when the medicine is first coming on. But then later we actually aren't encouraging people to try to relax so much. We're, we're, there are times when we do, but mostly if anxiety is coming up later in the session, we're encouraging people to use their breath to breathe into the experience, um, to stay with it and move through it rather than trying to settle it down or push it away from it, to look at everything that arises as something your inner healing intelligence is bringing up for your healing and your growth. So talking about that ahead of time is really helpful, just kind of introducing that, that approach that we take during the sessions. Um, and what are some of the most important lessons you learned in the, these many years of holding space for MDMA sessions with severe PTSD? I mean, it's, it seems to work for everybody. I mean, that nobody was harmed by being in our studies. You know, we did a long-term follow-up questionnaire at the end, and nobody um, indicated that they had been harmed at all. And, you know, there were some people that maybe didn't do as well with the um, some of the testing that we were looking at, but overall the their life was changing in dramatic ways. Um, so, you know, I think one of the, one of the um, sad things is some of the people with PTSD go back to, um, you know, no job, um, are the way our society works. We don't really have places for those people, you know, to have support. And so that can be somebody that doesn't have the economic means or support, family support. That can be one of the challenges for doing this work because you can help people heal, but then they go back to maybe a situation that's, that's not um, a positive situation. And, and that can be a real challenge. Yeah, I think for me, one of the maybe the deepest lessons is that trusting that people can, the process can keep unfolding in a useful way. Because we have seen people, you know, with very severe PTSD that have been radically better by the end of, you know, two months after their second or third MDMA session. But we've also, we've never seen anybody that wasn't somewhat better, as Annie said. But we've seen people that 
who are still struggling quite a lot. Uh, it's a, not the majority, but a significant minority of people were still struggling quite a lot at the end of the study. Um, but we've seen repeatedly that, you know, if they keep doing some inner work, sometimes with a therapist, sometimes without a therapist, um, and stay with it and have the encouragement and the perspective that it can keep unfolding. We've seen dramatic changes, you know, a year or more later. So it's a really interesting thing, you know, that most medication treatments, certainly, people don't tend to keep getting better once you stop the medicine, especially if you've only taken it two or three times a, a month apart. But it's very clear that this healing process just keeps unfolding. Um, Cleaning the wound. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and trusting also, you know, we've had the sense. Obviously, the research is the protocols are very strict, and people can only have X number of sessions. Usually, it's three. Um, and we've seen situations in which. Again, somebody was improved but still struggling quite a bit, and we've wished we could have done more MDMA sessions, which I think probably could have been useful. But also it's been a good lesson for us and for them in terms of trusting themselves to find that, well, yeah, we wish we could give you another MDMA session, but we can't, but we're confident you can keep working with this and keep healing. And we've seen, yeah, that happens. So that's a really important important lesson for me. And I think it's, you know, I, I, I think sometimes maybe it would have been better if we could have done more MDMA sessions. But then again, maybe people wouldn't have gotten such a powerful message that the process was, could keep going without the MDMA too. So more trust in, in themselves and their inner healing intelligence once the MDMA helped the process start moving and helped get some of the obstacles out of the way. They didn't really need the MDMA in the same way anymore. Yeah, I think um, what Michael said, that's also part of what, you know, we really talk about in the beginning in those preparatory sessions is what the integration is going to look like and what are the tools that they have, you know. Do they have a practice? Do they have a yoga practice or art or singing or, you know, whatever it is. Um, it's really good to have to help people start to have a practice walking, walking in nature, um, because all of those things come into play once they start to feel better. And they those things writing, you know, those things keep the process moving. And um, it's over and over again. It's been things like that. Yeah, you know, the other thing is. Um, the people that we've seen in these studies, you know, wouldn't have access to psychedelics, I don't think, a, a majority. I mean, there are some, obviously, that would. But they come, they come from, they've been naive, in a way, to psychedelics. And um, being able to offer it to people like that has been um, so rewarding, too. Because, you know, you, you tend to... It's the same with breathwork. There, breathwork you you don't see the people that are underprivileged at breathwork groups, and bringing these things to people that don't have the privilege that so many of us do. 
is is really important. It is does seem like it's going to be one of the difficult questions as this moves forward is accessibility and the ability for any country to afford you know two therapists and one person for a very long period of time who has severe trauma. Um, yeah, it'll it'll be fascinating to see how this rolls out. Yeah, it will be. I mean, we're making efforts already for, in our phase three design to collect data that might be relevant to insurance companies about, you know, less medical utilization and lots of, because there are a lot of data about how much, how many health consequences go with PTSD beyond the PTSD. Um, so, and if you look at the how much it costs for somebody to have PTSD um, for decades, it's very, you know, even though our treatment, the way we're doing it now is more expensive up front, it probably is very cost effective in the long run when you have the kind of results we've been having. It would have cost a lot more to treat these people and, and not have them really getting much better. But also, I think once it's approved, you know, it'll there'll be a lot more flexibility. And for some people, they probably don't need two therapists. And for some people, they could do it in groups. For others, they might need more intensive stuff. So I think there'll be lots of ways to look into research and develop ways to do it more cost-effectively once there's more flexibility, too. Um, so in the academic community, was there a lot of pushback as you started re- releasing these findings that were so powerful that they, they almost seemed unbelievable for PTSD remissions? Well, I'd say there was more pushback in the academic community before we released the data. <laughs> uh, you know, there was quite a lot of pushback. Um, most universities didn't want anything to do with us at that point. Um, I would say once we published data in a reputable journal, things really began to shift. I think there were, we still ran into situations where people, I don't think, gave the data a very fair look. Maybe it did seem too good to be true. But in general, I'd say the attitudes started shifting, and they've shifted radically now. You know, for phase three, we're going to, it looks like we're going to have affiliations with two major universities at sites there. In our last study with the veterans, we were doing, collaborating with imaging researchers at the Medical University of South Carolina, which, you know, when we got our first study approved in 2001, they were distancing themselves from us as fast as possible. Um, and now, you know, that's cha- that's come around. So it's really gratifying to see. The other thing that's helped is that um, all the studies with psilocybin at Hopkins and in New York and, um, and, UCLA. and UCLA and having those results be positive and be published and in the news a lot at the same time has been, you know, I think really helpful for, for all of the psychedelics, you know, um, and for people understanding more about what we're doing. And another uh, aspect of your work I'm curious about is the training program uh, that you help other therapists experience this. What's it like to be running that for people who are so in tune with the other therapy modalities, but maybe not as used to the medicine? Yeah, so we're doing two different... So one training is to be able to give MDMA to therapists. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's been really, really um, fun and interesting to... Um, yeah, to to give people that opportunity. And um, 
people, it, it's been surprising because I think people haven't realized, not all of them, but I think there have been some of them that haven't realized what's actually going to happen and that they're actually going to have two therapists and all that time and attention. And so I think there, some of them have been very surprised at um, what has happened and how beautiful it is. And yeah, it's it, that's been that's been wonderful. Do you want to add anything, Michael? Well, the other thing about that that's nice is there's a placebo session too. So mm-hmm. the therapists get to have their own all day placebo session, just like in the studies, and they also get to see well that can be very useful too. You know, because right. we did see a, a good effect with just. The therapy, not near, but then it was much, much larger with the MDMA. But I'd say just to say something more about the training program, it's been a lot of fun. But you know, before people do their, before the therapists are eligible for their own MDMA session, they have to go through our other non-drug training, um, which is there's an online segment first, and then there's a a six-day in-person training and then there's a second one of those later and in the first one especially it's mostly watching videos and discussing videos from our session so it's a very rich process and yeah sometimes it's very interesting to see that there you know people are taught a lot of things in other therapy um, methods that some of which are very important. I mean, we're not training therapists from the ground up. We're just training therapists to use the same approach that we've been using for the purposes of research. But a lot of a lot of it is kind of unlearning old habits because it is a much less directive approach most of the time. And so if you had a broad spectrum, what other applications of MDMA therapy would be most of interest to you? Well, couples therapy... Um, is I think one of the most exciting areas and we are doing a small study now uh, collaborating with Candace Monson and Ann Wagner in Toronto, two psychologists there, using the method that Dr. Monson developed, cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for couples, one of whom has PTSD and combining that with two MDMA sessions uh, two or three weeks apart. So that's been, we've, we've done three couples so far um, and that's been very exciting and it really, you know, there was a lot written before, you know, anecdotal reports about how useful MDMA was with couples and um, this is certainly bearing that out so far. Um, I think it'd be really wonderful to use it with families who are um, having trouble communicating about issues um, like especially after the death of someone or and then also before someone dies, like the the um, study that's going on in Marin um, right now, I think it, it could be incredibly useful for those two. Mm-hmm. And if you had free legal ass- access to all the medicines, what medicines would be the most intriguing to both of you that you might want to incorporate or other modalities if it was wide open? When I first had my first conversation with Rick Dalvin in 2000 about would it be possible to do this research, and he said, you can do it here and we'll help you, because I thought I'd have to go offshore or something. Um, He said, what do you want to study? And I said, MDMA, LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. Uh, 
<laughs> basically, <laughs> basically, he said, me too, but we have to start someplace. So we decided on MDMA for PTSD. So, and now I'm uh, realizing in one lifetime, I'm not going to get to all that, but that's, that's okay. But I think those, those are maybe the four that I'm most interested in. And, you know, there's research in all those areas so far and, um, psilocybin and MDMA having the most research, but I think they're all very, very promising. And, you know, it's great to see the research developing for these other compounds too, because I think, I think this is, you know, part of a, quite a transformation in, in psychiatry and psychology that's much needed. If you were put in charge of how these medicines actually were rolled out to the people, what kind of system would you put in place? Would you like to see for healing? Well, I'd like to see a, a clinic setting, which was would have some nature, um, some availability to be outside, but also you know have a nice, comfortable um, place with. I mean, I think the male and female um, model is. A really beautiful model. I mean, like Michael said, you know, maybe someday it won't be necessary for for that. But I think having a mom and dad is just ideal. If if it was a perfect world, you know, to be able to work out all of your issues around your mom and dad and your growing up. Um. So I I feel like it. You know, our setting has been really a beautiful setting that we've done it in, and um. Yeah having support, other people that could help, you know, to make food and um, have art, have, well, we have music, but I mean, yeah. Yeah, um, and that's largely what we're envisaging and really suggesting to FDA that when it is approved, if it is approved, which I, I prefer to say when it is approved, but we, of course, we don't know how phase three is going to come out. But um, that it should be in, you know, licensed clinics or places that where people have the proper training about how to support people and um, have the proper setting to do it. Because I think all these medicines need to be treated with a great deal of respect, you know. And if you, although I think you know some of these, um, I ideas about researching the way it could help with creativity and other non-medical things. I think the, I'd like to see those move forward too. But so it doesn't have to be necessarily so medicalized for, for everybody perhaps. But if you look at the cultures that have long experience with with psychedelic compounds, like, you know, I've been to the Amazon, um, people don't just go take them you know, willy-nilly. It's part of a very respected and um, structured way of having proper support and using them with respect and and with safety, you know. So I think a system that that honors those things is, is a good idea. I don't think to have any physician able to write a prescription and send people home with these would be such a good idea, actually. Hopefully soon enough we'll be seeing psychedelic hospices and all kinds of mm-hmm. healing centers around the country and, and one of them being yours. Mm-hmm. So Let's hope so. Let's I'm hope so. feeling pretty confident about it. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for your work and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks for helping to uh, inform people about it. Thanks for listening to the Sacral Excellent 2.0. To help us out, you can leave a review or rating on your favorite podcast service or share an episode with a friend. It really does make a difference. And to follow along with everything else we're working on, check out patreon.com slash nonsense.